This is episode number 63 with former right-handed pitcher Bronson Arroyo. Bronson is someone who I have been watching pitch for many years now, being that he played in Cincinnati um, for the last part of his career. Someone who I have so much respect for as a competitor and someone who has so much attention to detail. Anyone who pitches 85 to 89 miles an hour as a right-handed pitcher and pitches until they are 40 years old is someone who knows what they are doing on the mound. Um, He went several years without missing a single start. Um, Just someone who is is an awesome guy on and off the field. I mean, he really is. I think listening to this interview, you will will get some respect for uh, why he kind of is the way he is. And just an awesome dude. I mean, he's just a really, really cool guy. Um, this episode is brought to you by Blast Motion. Blast Motion is the best bat sensor on the market. Several MLB organizations are already using Blast Motion sensor. Um, the Astros, the Twins, um, Carlos Correa is one of the, the big sponsors or guys who really uses it the most probably in the big leagues. Um, If you head on over to BlastMotion.com and type in the code PJB25, you will receive $25 off. Um, Like I said, this sensor is something that can track how long you're on plane with the pitch for, time to contact, bat speed. Um, I use it for kids as young as 8 years old all the way up to 23 who I work with. So very great product, um, something I would definitely recommend and Head on over to BlastMotion.com and check it out. Without further ado, here is the man, the myth, the legend, Bronson Arroyo. We now welcome on former right-handed pitcher, Bronson Arroyo. Bronson, growing up, you actually had a little bit of a different childhood than a lot of people. I, I saw a video the other day that someone texted me of you, like eight years old, deadlifting like 350 pounds. It looked like your back was literally going to just snap in half. Um, how, why was everything so different for you growing up? Yeah, actually, well, it wasn't 350. I don't want to get people. I, I, it's already a ridiculous amount of weight. I think in that video, I was eight years old. I was deadlifting 255. But um I squatted 235 in that deadlift 255 and bench 130, and I, I weighed under 60 pounds. But, you know, my, my father was uh, he was a construction worker down in the Keys, and he was from Cuba, but he had never played baseball. And he just um, he observed me as a, as a five-year-old kid who was kind of begging to play t-ball. He just saw that I could backhand a ball like a 12-year-old and throw it across the infield, and he, he just saw the athleticism there without ever having playing a, a game of catch with me. So um, he just thought, <clears throat> you know, he, he was a construction worker, and he had all these friends down in the Keys. There was a culture at that time of lifting weights really heavy, and they were into powerlifting. <clears throat> and so I'd sit as a three- and four-year-old kid in the weight room and watch them work out. And so he just thought, I'll put them in the weight room, make them a little bit stronger. I could at least get them a free education in college playing baseball. And so it just became this thing. And my father's just super regimented. So he's not like a, a parent who would, would, you know, do something really um, dedicated for a month or two and then just slack off. Like this is a guy who never, ever missed a day. It was like it, it, the way major league baseball is. It's like, there's no such thing as a day off. You know, you're at the park on time every day and there's no excuses. And he kind of lived that way. So we just built this culture to where I was lifting weights and slowly I was just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And next thing you know, I'm just pushing ridiculous amounts of weight. And it just kind of became a thing that I could see the finish line of being a major league baseball player at a very young age. 
But like growing up, like when you were lifting those weights as a kid, like I mean, how did your body like react to that? Were you like just going to school like bent over back, like just sore? Or no, was I wasn't. I wasn't sore at all. You know, you just you, you find yourself. You know, I think the human body can take whatever it is you're going to apply pressure to it over the long haul. And it wasn't like I, I didn't go from from not lifting weights at all to putting 250 pounds on my back. Obviously, that would would be impossible. But in order to for the body to just sustain that type of weight, you realize the dedication you had to put in. And so it was a slow haul, just like in anything else. And we would we, we started off with, you know, I, I remember I just benching the bar it was 20 pounds. You know, I remember the first time I sat under a bench, I was five years old and I was doing the, the bar or whatever. But then you're just slowly building and slowly building. And so then what seems to be a ridiculous amount of weight for the average kid, obviously, at, at um at that age and that weight just wasn't for me, you know? So, I mean, and, and what you saw in those videos was also six months of training and maxing out on one specific day when we were just totally prepared for it and you had carbo loaded and everything was just right. That was only happening twice a year inside of my normal workouts. Obviously the, the weight would be back down a little bit, but you know, if I was, if I was squatting 235, then obviously you could put 190 on there and do it for reps of 10. And that would still be ridiculous for a kid of that of that age. But we had we had built into it, and it was something that you know he was there. He understood the weight room. My my father was also a big strong guy. You know, he's benching in the mid four hundreds at the time and squatting in the six hundreds. So it wasn't like I was ever in danger of getting hurt either, because he was right there. He was spotting me. He was serious about it. There was no shenanigans or any any kind of horseplay in the weight room. It was always serious. You played a very long time in the major leagues. Um, a lot of that has to do with you know mentally being strong. You know, they always say that. It's hard to get there. It's even harder to stay there. Um, do you think that doing all that lifting at a young age and putting in all that work um, helped kind of uh, mentally, like, just make yourself so strong, knowing that you had prepared? You've been preparing your entire life. Yeah, it, it, it definitely did, you know. And the, the when I got to the rookie league, it was, in 1995, I'm drafted by the Pirates in the third round, and, and I only have to go – uh, you know, 90 miles from my house, which was kind of kind of nice. You know, a lot of guys were having to get on a plane and go across the country, and, and I got a chance to drive my car down to a place I was semi-familiar with. And I got down to Bradenton, and what I realized in a short amount of time was that because of the stuff we were doing in the weight room and just the, just the, the regiment, it wasn't so much what we were lifting, but just the fact that we did baseball year-round. When I was playing basketball and playing football, I was still coming home and hitting in the batting cage at night, and we were still throwing year-round. And so my body was trained to play baseball and just... To, my mind was was used to thinking you know that baseball was a year-round process and so was the weight room so when I got to the rookie league there was a lot of guys that had a hard time with just the, the workload with it being hot there's nobody in the stands there's three people in the crowd watching your rookie league baseball games down Bradenton Florida you know one of them is somebody's girlfriend and two scouts and that's that's all you had down there you know and so um you know, guys really quickly felt like they were getting burned out and they weren't sure if they had got themselves into something they didn't want to be a part of. And, and that never happened with me because I felt like I, I had been preparing for this for like 12 years prior to being drafted. And, um, you know, I think the one question that I always get, though, from people is um, how did your father spin that positively? Because you, you, you hear these horror stories about a guy like Todd Marinovich. Yeah, I was going to ask you because you'd say like you see that today on social media, you know, they'd be like child abuse. Like. Absolutely, absolutely. And well, the, the difference was is that the stereotypical what I would call the quote unquote um, little league father who was so harsh on his kid that he burned him out. Right. Um, the difference with what my father was doing is that when you look at all those stories, the one thread that goes through all those those horror stories is that the father you can never do enough to make the father proud right it was like oh you went three for four today but why'd you strike out against that guy in the seventh inning right and my father was the exact opposite it was we got our butt kicked today and you went over four and you got shelled on the mound but it doesn't matter you know what tomorrow 
were coming to get him, right? And if he got beat again, it didn't make any difference. His persistence on just continuing to get up regardless of the fails, uh, just just that one, you know, click from negative to positive just in that outlook really just changed everything for me you know I obviously I didn't know it was going on at the time luckily for me I had a father who was observant enough to, to put that down in front of my face but um, that that made me believe that the glass was always half full in life no matter how bad it could get and so it made you go to the rookie league with the pirates and say yeah man it's hot and it's, we're eating sack lunches man and this isn't the most comfortable thing but we're going to just keep putting one foot in front of the other and hopefully we're going to get to the big leagues yeah I'm, I'm really glad you you gave that point because so many parents out there do need to to see that I, i'm able to see that firsthand just from the summer bowl and how just crazy i mean you hear parents spend twenty thousand dollars a year on their kids um but i mean even in the minor leagues like it took you a long time to be an everyday major league player um a lot of people always look at the end product you know i remember when i remember watching you play and, and everything you know you were an everyday guy for the reds everyday guy but was, we were just talking about sam mcconnell and sam was like Dude, it took him a very – he threw a – I mean, I forget the amount of innings. It was like something crazy amount of innings you actually threw in the minor leagues before you were in an everyday big leaguer. Yeah, you know, last year when I was with the Reds, that last year, you know, you, as you come through the, the game, and I'm, I'm having to deal with it now when you talk to parents and their kids are about to be drafted. This last draft, I knew three or four high school kids that were – you know, I played catch with them when they were 12 years old and now they're being drafted, you know, and their parents are, were, are always so caught up in the one little moment, you know, that we're, oh, whatever round we're being drafted in matters so much. And it, it doesn't matter, like you said, the, the, the whole body of work is what's going to get you to, to the end game and, and to see, like you said, you always just kind of look at the Bronson played 15 years in the big leagues, but you don't see that I pitched seven years in the minor leagues. And some of that was my first run all the way up to the big leagues in 2000 when I first get called up. And then there's another three years where I'm bouncing up and down between the Red Sox and the Pirates and I'm not sticking in the major leagues. And um, yeah, I pitched 1100 innings in the minor leagues. I've got, was, yeah. I've got, I've got like, um, I've got like 84 wins in the minor leagues. I mean, if you look at anybody else in major league baseball who has over 100 wins anybody you can't find a guy who has more than 50 wins in the minor leagues barely guys who have 80 80 to 90 minor league wins these guys are lifetime minor league players and have less than a year of service time in the major leagues you know I was I was down there for a long time but I was a skinny guy who didn't throw that hard and I had to continue to prove to people that I could win at every level and that was including getting to the big leagues and having a little bit of success and teams still doubting you you know and it took for me to get to Boston in 2003 pitching in a play in a playoff game and for people to realize hey there's something a little different about this guy you know he's out on the mound he, he he's not afraid in Yankee Stadium in September facing you know Derek Jeter and, and Gary Sheffield and Alfonso Soriano and, and finally I got stamped by Theo Epstein of the Boston Red Sox and he said you're a major league pitcher and that kind of that stamp then carried through the rest of my career and, and allowed me to be free and not worry about if I was going to make a ball club or not did you ever doubt yourself I never I never doubted that I'd make it to the major leagues and that was that was not not because I just thought that I was so good. I, I felt like I was honest enough with my own abilities and kind of removing yourself from yourself and looking at yourself from the outside and observing everyone else. And I saw other guys that were at least getting to the big leagues that I knew that when we played on the same teams together, I was more consistent than them, right? I was throwing more strikes. I was walking less guys. Yeah, they might they might have struck out more guys than me, but I found ways to win more ball games than them, right? And I, I was a winner all the way through the minor leagues. And so when I observed guys like Chris Benson and Jason Johnson, um, and these guys were getting to the big leagues, um, I knew I would get there. I, you know, as far as staying for 15 years, no, nobody could project that, and it'd be hard to say that you could. Um, you know, that, that you'd be able to survive in the game for a long period of time. But I, I knew that my, my ability, once I had gotten 
my second year in the minor leagues. I played 1996 in Augusta, had a good year. Um, I was seven and two with, a, with a, like a two with like a two something ERA in the first half, and then 1997 I'm in High A. We win the championship, and I go 12 and four with a 3-3, and I lead that league and wins and and close in ERA. And then I could see the handwriting on the wall, you know. And and I also I also had come from this background that nobody knew was inside my mind of this dedication I had done with my father, and it, it just made it that much easier for me to to not be pessimistic about the times that I did get my butt kicked. Once you did finally establish yourself as a major leaguer, ended up winning the World Series um, in 2004, that team was just absolutely loaded with talent. I mean, what what was it like just going to the ballpark every day? You're seeing you got Pedro, you got Kurt Schilling, um, you know, Big Poppy, Manny Ramirez. I mean, was there just egos everywhere or was it? chemistry like pretty well yeah it was it was a good clubhouse you know I had come from Pittsburgh so I had been in Pittsburgh for eight years mostly in the minor leagues but parts of the last three from 2000 to 2002 in the big leagues and that was a very segregated locker room it was not a gelled locker room we were losing 90 to 100 games a year and that's you know a lot of times we like to say if you got a good clubhouse you win ball games that's not necessarily true but it, it definitely helps and it doesn't it doesn't help a ball club that's already losing when you have dissension inside the locker room and I was playing with guys like Jason Kendall Brian Giles um, Kevin Young um, you know and these guys were running that locker room and they they just weren't quite on their game enough at their age at 26 and 27 years old when they were anointed the kings of that locker room to understand what it was like to segregate the young guys from a ball club that had a lot of young guys on it and so it was a really it was a really kind of um miserable experience a lot of times there was a lot of times I was in the major leagues for the first parts of three years that I thought you know what just send me back to AAA because I enjoy being around these guys really yeah there, there was times you know they, they were they were hazing the rookies on a level that that was 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 counterproductive to to the the locker room being cohesive and um you know that they, they just didn't understand how to, to how, how to have this push and pull and to give a little bit of love and then push back and, and have this back it was always pushing you away and that made it very difficult you know it's hard to be out on the major league field when you're 23 24 years old you're already having a hard time getting hitters out the league at that time you know was just loaded with these monsters who are all full of steroids and just hitting homers everywhere right and so and, and you're looking at a guy like mark mcguire man and it's like he was on a poster on your wall at some point in your life and that's hard enough as it is and then you have a catcher who who doesn't speak to you unless you're pitching right there's no communication there's no friendship there's no love in between those guys and so it made it very difficult so by the time i got to boston when you're talking about 0304 that locker room was completely different it was a bunch of superstars and there was not many egos in there i mean there obviously we all have egos in some regard but it was a very even killed locker room jason veritek was truly kind of the captain of that ball club and he you know welcomed me with open arms and he probably spoke to me you know, in, in one spring training when I didn't even make the club in 03 more than I had talked to Jason Kendall in three years of being in the big leagues with the Pirates. So, you know, you, you realized that there was a different culture in different organizations and you realized why there was a culture of winning over here and why the Pirates were not. What was the difference between Kurt Schilling, Hall of Famer, uh, Pedro Martinez, um, and those two guys? Um, you know, Kurt uh, Pedro's in the Hall of Fame. Kurt is not. I'm mean, sorry, sorry. Kurt yeah. is not, yeah. um, but he might be. He's kind of a borderline guy, you know. Um, but the difference in those guys, you know, everybody has their own their own way that they found uh, to be successful in the game. And obviously, superstars like that, they they all have their own little nuances. You know, Pedro was a guy who would come to the ballpark really late a lot of times. You know, I. I, I, I couldn't imagine coming to the ballpark at 520, like after the team had already taken batting practice. Like that that rarely ever happened on any ball club. You hear stories about Roger Clemens not traveling with the team and Randy Johnson. 
But uh, Pedro would come really late sometimes, but he did always travel with us. But then I remember looking up his numbers one day, and I said, let me just look up Pedro's numbers in a Red Sox uniform. He was 104 wins and 30 losses. Whoa. It was, it was the, it's the highest winning percentage of anybody who'd ever walked the earth, including going all the way back to Cy Young and Walter Johnson. And so I thought, yeah, I guess that's why they give him carte blanche to do whatever he wants. <laughs> but, but Pedro was a real fun guy. He'd come to the park late. He worked hard. Um, he had a lot of energy. He was real consistent with his personality. Uh, Kurt was a guy who was just real studious. He didn't do a lot in the weight room. He kind of rode the bike, and he did a lot on the elliptical, and, and he walked a lot on the um, on the treadmill. That's kind of how he stayed in shape. I never saw him really lifting a whole lot. He was kind of a guy I think was strong by nature, but he was very cerebral. He was a smart guy. He studied a lot of film, and he just had a knack for keeping the ball down in the zone, had pinpoint control, and he just knew how to govern his velocity. He could sit at 91, 92, and then when guys would get in scoring position, he could ramp it up to 97, and that really made him special because he, he knew how to get deep in ball games without exhausting his, his, um, his energy level early on. Big Poppy, Manny Ramirez, they've obviously both been linked to performance-enhancing drugs. Um, Robinson Cano, as of late, just got suspended as well. Are you still surprised that guys are getting caught? Yeah, a little bit because they, they've made they made it, uh, you know, I mean, at, at one time, obviously, it wasn't illegal in the game. No one talked about it. You did it if you wanted to do it. And um, that's how it was. And then, you know, once they started testing us in 2004, they've slowly made it you know, more frequent that they're testing us. They're now testing on Sundays. They're taking your blood multiple times a year for HGH. Um, you know, they're testing on getaway day. They'll make the plane wait now, which didn't used to happen even up to about five years ago. So, you know, there's, it's so strict now. I'm just surprised that anybody is willing to take a chance, but you know, there are, you know, I, I think, I think the guys that are getting popped now, I think are, are guys who are taking it to that next level. Maybe like a track and field star would have back in the day where they're, they're going to a clinic and they're getting their blood drawn all the time. And they're, and they're finding ways to stay inside of a limit that doesn't kind of pop them on a test for a while, but there are secondary tests that they can do to find out if that testosterone in your body is synthetic or not. And, um, um, that's where you're seeing a couple of these things happen with the Ryan Braun and, and the Cologne over the last few years. Um, but I, I would say without question that I, I would be very surprised if it was more than a handful of guys who are taking anything performance enhancing in Major League Baseball these days. They've done a really good job of making it almost impossible to, to do that. Are you still bitter at A-Rod for being a little girl and swiping at you uh, <laughs> running down the first base? Uh, well, you know, I, I was never really bitter about it, to be honest with you, because, you know, the way, the way that I viewed the game, I, I, I definitely didn't come with an ego when it came to what I considered to be frivolous stuff. Like, I would – I wouldn't care if a guy hit a homer on me and did a dance on home plate and then ran around. In my mind, I'm just thinking I gave him a run and I want to get the next guy out. And I, I definitely wasn't going to drill him in his ribs the next time up just because, because I didn't want to put a guy on base. I didn't feel like I had good enough stuff. Now, if I was Pedro and I felt like I could punch out the side all the time, then maybe, yeah, I probably would have drilled as many guys as Pedro did. But, but I, I didn't because I didn't want to have extra runners on base. So, you know, that stuff that happened in the playoffs in a super intense moment. I'm just glad that it worked out in our favor um, and it also made me a lot of money because in the end I signed that photo probably more than anything I've ever done in my career. Once you got traded to the Reds um, organization, you know, that, I think you were, I believe you were 29 years old. Is that correct? I was, uh, I think it was 28 when I came over here. Okay, 28 years old. What was the difference at that stage of the game for the Reds organization? Because now, you know, this today it's 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 completely different. I mean, there's there's nobody going to games. There's none of that happening. 
Um, what was the difference between like now and then? I think, well, I got to see both sides of the coin. I think it was probably, we were a little bit down on the bottom of the mountain and we kind of rose up for four years and now they slid down the other side of the mountain and you hope they can bring it back up. But the culture at that time was, well, I remember when I got traded, I didn't know anything about the national league. I had been, you know, when you played for the Red Sox and you're in this Yankee rivalry and you're, you're close to the world series or winning the world series a couple years in a row, you kind of live inside your own bubble. You feel like you're the center of the universe. Every time you turn on ESPN, they're talking about the Yankees and the Red Sox. Right. And so you didn't pay attention to the pirates anymore or the reds or anybody in the national league it's just the way it was you know and um so when i got traded i didn't even know who was on the club other than probably griffey yeah. and they you know they, they they rattled it off and they said hey we had one of the best offenses in the national league last year we really hit the ball we score a lot of runs we just don't have any pitching and everybody is super happy to have you here so i got into that locker room and i, I realized pretty quickly we had a we had a pretty good ball club but we just didn't have anything more than me and aaron harang really holding down the rotation the back end of the bullpen was david weathers who obviously should have been pitching in the seventh and eighth inning he wasn't a true closer you know he's throwing 88 89 miles an hour but he was a, a veteran and he knew how to win but we had really nothing in between me and Aaron and that you know we had Eric Milton who was never healthy you had Paul Wilson who was never healthy and then we were rotating a bunch of guys in and out from the minor leagues that just weren't equipped and and, and to pitch on that level at that time and so um you know, we got really close that first year, and uh, if we wouldn't have traded Felipe Lopez and Austin Kearns, I believe we would have had a shot at making the playoffs. We lost by two games to the Cardinals, I think. But we traded those two guys away for Gary Majeski and Billy Bray, and we didn't really get much production out of those guys, uh, you know, for the rest of that year. So um, that made it tough. But then you saw you saw what they were talking about in the minor leagues, and you were, they were talking about Jay Bruce. They were talking about Joey Votto. They were talking about Johnny Cueto, Homer Bailey. You know, we didn't, we didn't have Mike Leak yet, but, you know, you, you saw the handwriting on the wall that we were building a little bit towards a future. And sometimes it, it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But luckily for us, everything kind of fell together at the same time and we got an opportunity to play on, on a team that made, you know, the playoffs three out of four years. One of the questions that I kind of get a lot of times is, what is Joey Votto like as a person? I mean, there's so many different rumors about him out yeah. there. I've actually... Um, I don't live too far from the Kedwood Mall, and I, I go up there sometimes for help with my stuff. And they said, yeah, he's in here all the time taking classes and, and helping out the other older people, you know, fix right. stuff. I mean, what's he like as a guy, as a person? Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's, it's Joey's one of those guys I've played with. As he's hard to put your finger on exactly who he is as a person. You know, I kind of liken him a little bit to Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, who I've gotten to know over the years. And I, I asked um, – their tour manager who's been with them for 20 years one time I said how long did it take you to get to know Eddie and he said I still don't know him and it's it's almost like they only let you so far in and you're never really sure all the way down to the core what makes them tick you know and Joey Joey can be like that he's very cerebral he's a very smart guy he reads a lot he takes a lot of classes he's interested in geology and he learns Spanish and he's you know he's, he's studious and he sits quietly by himself but he's like he's a bit of a loner you know he doesn't he doesn't feel like he can play the game, I don't think, at an optimum level with a lot of moving parts. He could never be um, a guy who went out to the bar at night. He could never be a guy who was playing music like I was while I was playing. He can't have too many friends coming and going from his house. He's not going to be having a pool party on a yeah. Sunday because it's an off day, right? He needs to stay really structured inside the game on how much he's sleeping. He wakes up in the morning. He likes to stretch. You know, he's going to eat a certain meal. He's not going to pick his cell phone up for an hour, right? He's got all these rules that he's kind of living inside of, and he, he wants to maximize his time in this game. And, and you can't fault him for that. But I think where people maybe don't understand Joey a little bit is that he he's just he hasn't always been perfectly socially, you know, uh, functional. Like he's a little awkward when it comes to how to to move about in his space. And, and you know, he'll, he would come to me sometimes and say stuff like, man, did you hear what I just said to that guy? And I'll say, yeah. And he'd say, 
something like, um, would you have said that a different way? You know, sometimes he can be a little bit abrasive and he, he doesn't want to be and he doesn't mean to be. But for whatever reason, the way he grew up or whatever he was when he got into this game, he, he just wasn't sure about how he should be. But he's gotten way more comfortable in his skin over the last, you know, eight, nine years playing in the game. Um, he's a funny guy. He's fun to be around the clubhouse. He, if you ask anybody, do you like Joey Votto in the clubhouse? They all love him. I mean, he, he, he's gotten to be one of the team leaders in kind of a quiet way, though. And um, he's really enjoyable to be around. He's, 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 a, he's a comedian, really. He's just people don't know that about him. He takes the game very seriously. And sometimes if you saw him walking down the street, he's a bit guarded towards, towards someone he doesn't know. But if he knows you, he would immediately just, hey, man, so good to see you. you know? But if you don't know him and you say, like, hey, Joey, you know, he's not real, he's not real um, open to just letting a stranger kind of get close to him. And it's almost like not because he's an asshole. It's almost more like he, he just is a little fearful full of someone not knowing their intentions right yeah and especially him being one of the best players in the game i mean people maybe he might think they might take advantage of him or something like that um one of the things that i think is is pretty cool is you you know once baseball has ended for you you know you're you're in you travel with pearl jam a little bit is that correct i haven't traveled with them but i go i go see I, i go see shows and i get to hang out with the guys a little bit um yeah, I, I don't I don't travel with them, but sometimes I'll go to four shows in a row and I'm kind of traveling with them, but I'm not like traveling on the bus with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, like now that your baseball career has ended, I mean, what what motivates you every single day? You know, I, I've just been kind of a guy who's been interested in just so many different things. You know, I, I, I've lived my life a little bit different than the average guy in the game. Most most guys in the game, um, you know, they usually have a wife early on in their career and they have kids and and I, I don't have kids of my own and. And I just kind of come and go a little bit more. I've always lived a life where I, I would, you know, I'd be home for a week in Florida in the off season. I'd be training with my father in the weight room. And then I'd go to Naples and train with Chris Sale and a couple of guys for a couple of days and see my old girlfriend. And then, and then maybe I'd go to Boston and play some music. And then I might go to California and then I'd come back. And I kind of always moved around like that throughout my off seasons because I just realized we were kind of tied to the game for eight months out of the year. And we didn't have a lot of free time. And so that has been built into my system. I used to, I'm used to kind of going like that. And, and so I, I've, now that I'm retired, you know, a lot of my friends, they're not sure. And they say, man, are you, are you bored yet? And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm busier now than I've ever been because I'm doing a podcast today and I'm playing a music show tomorrow, three hours from here. And you know, that I'm going to go snow skiing or I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. I'm writing some music with some friends. You know, th- I just have a lot of things that I've, I, I wanted to get into and I just never could um, playing the game. So now I'm just taking advantage of having some free time and, um, you know, I don't think I'm going to be bored anytime soon. I think I got a decade of stuff to do. Are you ever going to get back into baseball? Because you're such a well-spoken person. I remember hearing you talk to uh, the kids at your camp, and you're just, you know, some guys can, can feel it, can do it, right? But to actually be able to explain what they're doing um, is kind of a talent in itself. I mean, you see some Hall of Fame players who, you know, they, they're still teaching swing down. They're still teaching other stuff. But, I mean, you can really, like, break down what you did. And I feel like that could definitely help people or up-and-coming players. Um, so I just wasn't sure if you ever thought about getting back into the game. Well, I, w- I went to spring training this year because Brian Price asked me to. He started asking me in the middle of last year if if uh, I think he knew he was going to come back before long before he ever told anybody. And he, and he asked me, would I come in and do some stuff? And I said, yeah, I'll come in. Just let me know what you want to do, and we'll kind of think about it. And, you know, I, ne- I never want to be a guy who's, who's going – I, I don't want to be a guy who just comes into an organization and – 
is feeding the exact same stuff that everybody else is feeding, like the old school mentality. You know, I pitched from outside of the box with such a different mentality and kind of a, a chess match to beating hitters that I, I want to be able to give these these a couple of things to maybe a guy who could really help him from, from thinking outside of the norm of, of the baseball mentality. And so I really do enjoy doing that. The problem with being in baseball on a day-to-day basis is that it's very time-consuming. And, you know, I've been thinking about this game since I was in the weight room, like I said, at about age six. So you're talking like 1982-83. I've been living inside of the game. And so for now, I need more free time, and that's why I didn't tie myself to the Reds with a paycheck. But I told him, basically, if you need me for anything, you let me know. And, and I go down to the clubhouse. Like, I'll go down next week, and I'll be with the clubhouse guys, and we'll clean the shoes, and we'll have, pass out the laundry, and, and we'll chat with the guys. And, and I'll probably get an opportunity to talk to, you know, um, like I, I want to have a conversation with Disco Fani just uh, about one specific little thing, you know, and I'm just throwing this little nugget out to him, man. And maybe he uses it, maybe he doesn't, but it's just something I might've observed, you know, or you have a conversation with a guy like Harvey or whatever. And, you know, just to be able to go in the locker room and still have those connections with the guys and maybe just drop a little something down. It means a lot to me, but as far as being like a full blown, um, you know, you want, you're going to be hired by the reds to do X, Y, and Z eight months out of the year. I, I don't know if I'll ever do that, to be honest with you. And, and I always say if I could rip myself into three Bronson Arroyos, absolutely. I'd coach the rookie league and at the big league level. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I do love the game, but I'm 41 years old, and, and time goes by really quick, and I need to get some other things out of my system and not be tied to a paycheck every week, at least for a while. And that, now, I would never say never. There could come a time 10 years from now that I feel like I've done everything in the world, and I'm like, you know what? It's time to get back in the game and get serious about it. But I don't know if that'll come. Going back into kind of your your training, um, I, I, I coach some players now, and – I was just wondering if there was any type of advice that you could give them from just a preparation standpoint. I think that you kind of unfairly were uh, people, some people will say, well, well, you know, he's just a guy who, who goes out late, you know, has to have a good time and then shows up the next day and, and, and pitches. And, you know, just from knowing some of the same people that, you know, you know, and played with, um, I know that's not the case, obviously, you know, you worked your butt off to get there. Um, does that like frustrate you? I guess two parts of the question. Does that frustrate you? And you know, what would you tell an up and coming player who is hungry to get to the big leagues? Yeah, well, you know, I, f- I fought that stereotype for a long time because when I was with the Pirates, you know, I would show up with my hair in cornrows sometimes, and I was playing the guitar a little bit. I just started playing the guitar in the early two thousands, and and um, you know, people kind of uh, they stereotypically said, "Oh, he's 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 from Florida, he wants to go surfing, he wants to play music, he wants to smoke a joint, he, you know, they, they, they put that stereotype on me, and it took a long time for people to understand what I was doing behind the scenes, right, it was like, I, I would say that my whole career was kind of like this, Ryan Ludwig one time, he, he, he was in my room, I'll never forget, we were in Arizona, we're staying at the Ritz-Carlton where all the teams used to, and there's a little bar, one of my favorite bars in the league, called the Merck Bar, and we were hanging out there that night, and it was kind of quiet. We were back up in the room. It was about 2 in the morning, and he said, you know, I wish I would. It was like August, and he said, I wish I would have hung with you a little bit more this year, you know. And, um, and, and I told my wife that, and he said, he said uh, I told my wife that, and she said, why, why would you want to hang with Bronson? Isn't he a partier? And, and, he, and, he said, and he said, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. He said, I see him out all the time, but I never see him with a drink in his hand, barely. 
and he always takes care of himself. And he goes, I've been in this locker room for, for this six months. And he goes, I haven't heard one bad thing about the guy. Right. And so it took a long time for people to understand that, you know, I was paying attention to details, not only going out to the bar, paying attention to details, but when you slept, when you ate, when you went to the ballpark, when you got your workouts in. Right. I mean, I'd come home from, from Wrigley sometimes on a Sunday night and I'd be working out at 11 o'clock at night in the weight room. Just as we got off the plane, everybody else was going home and they're like, why are you working out now? Well, I didn't want to work out at 11 o'clock in the morning because for one, you know, it, it was a bad weight room in Chicago. Also, I have to do a heavy squat workout and I know that my body's going to be more awake at 11 o'clock at night. It's going to be um, less chance of getting hurt. And also I'm going to be pitching at 7 p.m. in three days and I'm trying to work out closer to 24 hours away from when I'm going to be pitching. Right. So these types of details, it took a long time. It took me three or four years being with the Reds for people to really go like, whoa, man. Like, there's a reason why this guy's pitching 200 innings year after year after year, and he's not just going out drinking and partying every single night and ponying it up, right? Like, I didn't have a body like David Wells who would go surfing and throw a no-hitter in the same day that he said. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I couldn't do that. So, so for me, it was all about detail, and that's what I would say to young guys is if you want to play this game at a high level, you've got to pay attention to details. And, and, and you know, a lot of times we – we think we can anoint just, you know, like I could talk to a kid and just create a, a, the type of curveball that I have. And it's just not true. You know, I think I think all of us are made with a certain amount of genetic ability, whether it's feel for throwing strikes or be able to spin a breaking ball or to throw a sinker. We all kind of have our own mixed bag. And so I, I can't really tell you how to pitch like me because you're not me. But what I can tell you is that in order to maximize what abilities you do have, you need to pay attention to the details and find out, does this two-seam grip run a little bit more consistently than that two-seam grip? And does this curveball, you know, if I, if, I, if I drop down just a little bit and make it a little bit more sweepy, am I getting a lot more swings and misses? Or, or is it better to throw it 12-6, right? You got to pay attention to those details, and that also goes back to how much rest are you getting? How much calories are you getting? What types of foods are you eating? You know, all those minor little things. I mean, I stayed healthy for, for 19 and a half years before I got hurt. Never missed a start. I pitched 450 something times from the minor leagues, 1995 to 2014, when I got hurt with the D-backs. And part of that was that I understood the drugs that were in the locker room, right? Like the trainers are—they're uh, there to protect us and make sure that young guys aren't—you know—their liver and kidneys aren't going to fall out. But there's also organizations I've been in where you'd go in and ask for something like a, an anti-inflammatory for your arm to get me to my next start. And they'd be like, here's a couple of Advil. And that just wasn't going to do the trick. Right. So I learned early on that I need to have a little bit of cataflam with me, a little bit of Voltaren, maybe a, a dose pack just in case of emergency. Right. Like there's things I'm going to have in my hotel room that, you know, I got something going on, man. I got to pitch against the Giants in two days and boom, I just put a little bit in me. And that type of attention to detail allowed me to make that fist start and make that fist start and continue to go down the line that's that's pretty impressive I mean I, I honestly didn't know it was even that detailed um when you're on the mound what type of mentality do you have is it just a straight competitor like get the fuck out of my way if like you know you know you're in my way type of a thing or are you just out there just trying to pound the zone or like what what are you trying to do because I see that with like a lot of kids like we, I was watching a kid yesterday you know he didn't have a bunch of you know mound presence he was just kind of just there right um what was going through your your mind when you were pitching? I think I think it'd be a blend kind of of the two. So you said that you just saw a kid who just wasn't really there. He seemed not present, right? And then you also have the guy who's standing on the mound, like a um, maybe Latos at times. Um, there's some other guys that are really intense, right? And for me, I didn't want to I didn't want to burn too much energy. 
I kind of, and Joey Votto kind of plays the game that way as well. If you see him sometimes and he doesn't run super hard to first base, he's thinking about playing for the next 10 years. It's also why he swings the way he swings. He's not trying to kill the ball on every swing. Part of that is because he wants to have a good on-base percentage and hit, but it's also because he wants a swing that he can consistently put up when he's 40 years old. He wants to be able to drive the ball in the gap the same way he did when he was 30 as he is when he's 40. He doesn't have to morph into something different, right? And so I would say my my mentality on the mound was definitely a competitor, but a competitor where I'm toning down the adrenaline and toning down the wastefulness of energy, right? So I'm not going to be burning a bunch of stuff by snapping the ball back from the catcher, and I'm not going to be out there fuming and kind of grunting and, and just, you know, doing things that are going to burn up the umpire. Absolutely. Right? I'm, I'm going to pitch very quietly and cerebral, but you're going to know from what, if you watch me at a long enough period of time and pitch, you're going to know underneath I've got some fire and I'm definitely, so I, w- I would just say it was kind of like a hard stare. It wasn't going to be a lackadaisical stare, but it also wasn't going to be somewhere where you're seeing fire in my eyes. It was going to be kind of in between where you're focused, but you're also focused on how do I get deep in this ball game? Right. Because that's going to be the most important thing is like, yeah, you can come out of the gate and and be a bull in a china shop and look fantastic for four innings. But who cares if you can't get through the sixth or the seventh inning and and, and give your team the lead and give your chance to get a win and give your bullpen a little bit of a break so they don't have to eat up five innings for you, then it means nothing. And, you know, guys like Edinson Volquez, when we gave him the ball in game one of the 2010 playoffs against the Phillies, you know, I thought it was a mistake. I thought Johnny Cueto should have been out there at the time. And the reason was was because Edinson was a guy who was not going to have the ability to pull back in that type of playoff environment at that time. To, to, to take it down a notch and not and he was throwing 100 in the first inning but after the first inning he was done he was dead in the water right and so I play the game where you're thinking about how it is you're going to maximize your time out there on that mound and so yeah you're competing and 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 inside you got things going on but I'm not going to let the other team see that I'm flustered I'm also not going to show the umpire up and I'm going to give this consistency because the best thing you can do for your teammates behind you playing is give them consistency they know what they're going to get from you day in and day out. What type of personality and what type of pitcher are you going to throw strikes? Are you going to work quick? And are you not going to show your teammates up, right? And if you can do that, then you give everybody kind of a chance to know who you are. And hopefully when you're out on the mound, they want to play behind you. Wow. That's, that's incredible advice. Um, making all my players listen to this entire episode, but especially that part right there. We had one question. Um, I, there was a couple questions that, uh, that, that uh, sent me some emails about what they wanted to ask, and I think this had to have been some lady. Will you ever cut your hair? <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever cut my hair. You know, I, I've I've seen uh, a handful of guys over the years, not baseball players, but just you know friends that have been around or whatever, and they've had long hair and they cut their hair. And I've I see a lot of buyers remorse, man. They they right after they cut it, they're like, oh man, and they immediately start growing. I wish I had. I'm losing. My, I wish I had my hair. I wish I had more hair. <laughs> So I, you know what? I don't, I don't think I'm going to be, I won't be cutting my hair anytime soon. If it happens, if I do cut my hair, I, I don't know what would make me cut my hair. You know, it's, it's not a huge task for me to take care of it. And I, I enjoy the look a little bit. I'm kind of a thin guy with a kind of a skinny neck. And if I, if I cut my hair off short as yours, I in shave, I probably could still pass for like a 20 year old kid, but you know, I don't, I'm not so sure that I'm looking forward to that look these days. I, I actually, I don't mind getting a little bit older and, and being, uh, you know, at least looking like I'm a, a mid thirties guy. Yeah, sure. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate you know you taking the time today and and come on and you gave you dropped some really really important important advice. I think for uh, for a lot of a lot of guys up there, whether they're in pro ball in the minors or high school guys trying to get it. So I really appreciate the time. Sure, no problem.